Well, will you turn with me this morning uh, in the Word of God to Genesis 18? Genesis 18, and our text for examination this morning will be verses 16 through 21. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand now, whether you're here, whether you're in the overflow room, or whether you're at the kitchen table uh, watching on uh, Facebook Live. Just stand up out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Genesis 18, verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to Keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I'll go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. If not, I'm the Lord. You may be seated. This morning I want us to begin to work our way into our text here in Genesis 18 with a, a view to infant baptism and its meaning and its implication by thinking together for a moment about two sharply contrasting symbols which prevail throughout the church world today which represent in some ways two very distinct ways about the cultivation of Christian faith. And those symbols are pretty easy to identify. The bench and the catechism. For some parts of Christianity, the bench is the symbol of the birth of faith through some sort of experience. Historically speaking, it's new, based in 19th century revivalism. But what it represents is not just a place, but an idea. The idea is that the way Christian faith is born is through a life-altering, dramatic change. That comes as the emotions are inflamed, the senses are engaged, the will is moved, and the experience of drama and emotion, faith is born. The idea is that this is what's needed for everyone. Whether it's a child that grew up in the church within its walls and had learned its faith, or whether it's a person that had never darkened the door of a church. A life-altering experience leads to the birth of faith. That's one symbol, whether it's literally a bench or an altar, or just simply bowing your head and eyes as the music is playing slowly, and thinking about a call being made in a moment. There's the bench, and then there's the catechism. And just like the bench, it's not necessarily just a literal thing. It's, it's more than a learning tool. It's something that has been throughout the history of the church, a book of instruction for the purpose of teaching the covenant people of God about the Christian faith. And that little book points to something far beyond a set of questions and answers. Really, what it points to is an entire system. A child being brought up under believing parents being instructed in the faith, growing up in a home where prayers are being offered and said, where worship 
is presented to the Lord. But beyond that, an entire village, if you will, a church full of people who believe the same thing, who worship in the very same way, confess the very same faith, and pray with and for one another. It's covenantal. It represents a way in which the people of God seek to not only express their faith, but to train up their children in the way of the Lord in order that they may experience faith as well. I use those contrasting symbols, if you will, as an entry point to our text because it seems to me that we have before us here in Genesis 18-19 the catechism. The catechism way, or what I've entitled the catechism system, and you can see it for yourself there in verse 19. For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. What I want us to think about this morning is the catechism way. Something that God has appointed in his grace as a means unto an end. It's fairly obvious here. We have the means of catechizing, instructing in the faith. And we see the consequence which God himself is fashioned and appointed. So that... The Lord may bring upon Abraham and his house all that he spoke. That's the catechism system, and we'll think about it in three parts. The context, the method, and the outcome. And the context is not so much a part of the point I want to make this morning as the backdrop. It's that a whole set of facts and ideas which form the universe of thought which Abraham uses to make sense out of what God's calling him to hear. And we can jump into the context at verse 17 in this very interesting question. And it's a question the Lord himself raises. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It strikes us as odd, after all, because does God speak to himself and take counsel in this way? The fact of the matter, the text is representing to us that this is an indication of the divine counsel. And the way the question is formed indicates to us there's no question in God's mind that he will do something. He won't hide. He won't hide what he is about to do. We'll see in a moment that hiding of what he is about to do or the unveiling of it all is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want you to see here the twofold rationale that incorporates our text into it, which helps us, first of all, lay hold of some of the context what's important for us. He says in verse 18, for example, that... Um, Abraham will become a great and mighty nation, and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, God says, I, I need to disclose this operation to him. And then our text itself, for I've chosen him. I've chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And I think that's significant too, because... That's telling us that God is communicating what he's about to do for the purpose of Abraham, that he'll know how to instruct his house properly in the things of the Lord. So basically, that God says here to himself that I'm going to disclose what I'm about to do to Abraham because I've called him for a great purpose to catechize his family, his children, his house, so that I can bring upon him the things I've promised. But there's another level of context, and maybe it's a bit more complicated to unravel, 
but you can catch hold of that idea of a further range of the context in verse 16, where we read about these mysterious men. Notice, the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. So Abraham is a part of this group of people, these men that we'll see in a moment are, are angels. It's a visit from the Lord, and it's in that context the Lord asks or take counsel in himself, shall I disclose this? But, but they're, they're walking towards Gomorrah with Abraham. And uh, we're going to see in a moment that the Lord has something to do there, but the Lord has already done something for Abraham. Do you think back in the context here in Genesis 18, we're told something very peculiar happened on a hot, sunny afternoon in the desert. You're told in verse 1, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memory. While he was sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the valley, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed down. This is obviously a, a visit from angels, because if you look over in your text at Verse 2 of chapter 19, you're told explicitly two angels were there. But uh, it's fairly clear to us that there's something more significant than an angel here. There's the Lord. Because you're told in verse 1, the Lord appeared to him with these other two messengers. And so this is a theophany. This is the appearance of the Lord in a visual form before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that we know that the Lord is in the midst... And his active role is indicated by verse 13 when this group of messengers is speaking uh, around the dinner table. And we read there, the Lord said to Abraham. What was the point of their visit? Well, it was to disclose some things. And, and the first, as we just mentioned a moment ago, was the disclosure of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But... There was another reason for the visit. You can see that right after dinner in verse 9, the Lord puts a question to Abraham that's relevant. Where's Sarah? Where's Sarah, your wife? See, there's a conversation circle here, whether it's around a campfire or a stove or somewhere outside of the tent. Sarah is not there, and the Lord wants to disclose something to Abraham that's of the greatest significance to Abraham, his faith. As he says in verse 10, I'll return to you at this time next year, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. Now, if we remember the parts of the Abraham story, we immediately perceive that this is extraordinary. Because after all, they're old. We're told here that Sarah laughed, which is quite interesting to us. I'll get that in a moment, but... What is of interest is this is exactly what Abraham has just done. In Genesis 17, after God had publicly unveiled the sign of circumcision to signify and seal the covenant, he said to Abraham, you're going to have a son. And you know what Abraham did? He fell on his face and laughed. He said, what a gas. I'm 99 and Sarah's 90. And I'm going to have a son with her. So when Sarah hears the very same thing from the Lord, guess what she does? She laughs to herself. And then she speaks to herself in that same moment. Shall, shall somebody as old as me have a child? 
and the Lord to let them know that he knows all things and sees all things and hears all things, even the unspoken said, why did Sarah laugh? You see, Sarah and Abraham both have the same response to the promise of the covenant of grace, and it's this, it's impossible. What God is proposing is impossible to them. It's so impossible that it's laughable. It reminds us this morning something that is peculiar to all of God's promises. He makes sure that they're impossible so that we'll all know that they're by grace. We got to keep that in the back of our mind when we think about this glorious catechism system because we always need to discern, even though we have duty and obligation, the impossibility is still the same. It has to be that God is the one that performs what he promises, or they'll always fail. And Abraham is one of the greatest object lessons of that because he's constantly messing up the promises with his own works. So God promises that he's going to raise up to Abraham a great family when he's 99 and Sarah's 90. And then he says something else. And this is also a part of the overall backdrop to understanding this catechism system. God is the God of judgment of power. Look at verse 20. As they're walking down the road and uh, their sandals are kicking up dust, finally the Lord turns to Abraham now and he says, breaking the silence, the outcome of Sodom, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave. This is to put it mildly. The outcry is great and the sin is exceedingly grave. And one indicator to the gravity of the situation and the, the degradation of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is that as Abraham comes before the Lord and wrestles with him in prayer to not do what he's about to do, he finally works his way down to this saying, God, if there's ten righteous people in that city, please preserve it. And God said, I will. This is a city of evil, corrupt, degenerate people. And an index to their degeneracy is located in uh, Genesis 19 when uh, Lot's visitors uh, come to him, who are those same angels who had visited Abraham. And they go into his house, and the men of the city line up outside the door and pound on it, demanding the men be sent outside so they can rape them. Evil, debaucherous, corrupt, filthy, abominable society. But you know what? In thinking about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the prophet Ezekiel tells us something that really causes us to draw up and gasp. Because here's how he describes their sin hundreds of years later. Their guilt consisted in arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, and they didn't help the poor and the needy. Sounds kind of like the world we live in. Arrogance, abundance, careless ease, oppression of the poor and the needy. You see, uh, it's not a surprise to you, I guess, when one sin becomes dominant in the culture and becomes excessive, it just leads to other things. Sin is corrupting and it spreads out its tentacles like an airborne virus. And so one sin begets another, begets another, and begets another. And before long, evil prevails because of the toleration of wickedness. And that's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And one of the things that Abraham is required to teach his children is not just to avoid the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the bad stuff, but it's materialism. It's indifference to suffering and to need and deprivation. It's your whole context now. God's made a great promise, which is at the end of a series, a succession of promises. And another, he is to train up his children in a way that uh, steers his children away from this gross callousness to moral evil. So we come now into our text, and now we're being brought back into the divine council. We're being brought into one of the reasons the Lord himself offers for why he won't dis- why he won't hide this thing that he's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And it brings us into the heart of what we're going to think about here this morning in view of infant baptism, and that is the catechism system. The catechism system begins with this method, and that method starts with covenant standing. Covenant standing. And we see the idea of covenant standing of Abraham in verse 19, in the initial words, are chosen here. You may have a translation this morning that says no, but the verb there is so powerful that a whole host of commentators and scholars suggest that the best way to draw out the sense of that verb yada is to say it means to select, to choose. It speaks of something that's sovereign in the hands of the Lord. So the story here, the catechism system, begins with the execution of divine grace upon a parent. In that case here, it's Abraham. And as you think back to God's beginning of his ways explicitly with Abraham, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where we learn that God found Abraham in Sun City playing 18-hole golf. No, not exactly. He was in Haran, but he was 75 years old. This isn't the point in life when, uh, when you take up a new journey. You're not even thinking about children and raising up a family. But God comes to him and he makes promises to him. He says, covenantally, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the families through the earth through you. Well, that promise just gets unfolded again and again. In Genesis 13, Abraham jumped up from his, uh, his tent in Haran and he took his family. They packed up the U-Haul and they landed in Palestine. And the first thing that Abraham does is build an altar and worship the Lord. God comes to him and he takes him out on the uh, sand-swept desert floor and said, I want you to know, Abraham, I brought you here for a reason. It's to raise up a family that's so big. If you scooped up every grain of sand throughout the valley floor here, that's how large your family is going to be. Well, as a 75-year-old man, it didn't tend to impress Abraham too much. He didn't think too much of it, just that it's impossible. He wouldn't worry about it. So in Genesis 15, God comes to him again, and he says to Abraham, in the midst of a bright and starry night, he said, look up the sky, Abraham. As vast as the number of the stars is, it's your family. You come into Genesis 17, and God formalizes it again, and he says to him again, I, I'm going to, to make you a great family, but this time he gives Abraham a little sign and a token to make sure that from there on out, Abraham could look at this sign, this seal, 
this sacrament and know this. God had made a great promise to him and to his family. So Genesis 17, 7 says, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. So I want us to see, first of all, this morning, people of God, we think about the method. We say the method begins with covenant standing. The method begins with the sovereign administration of grace. God bringing Abraham into the covenant says, I am pouring out all of the riches of Christ's bounty upon you. But here's the thing, Abraham. It's not just on you. It's to you and to your family. And to seal that that's the case, you are to circumcise the male child of your house. People of God, the beginning of the method of the catechism system is to understand that God covenants with the believer and their children. It's unfailing, as the word says, unto a thousand generations. Peter plucks that very phraseology up in Acts 2.39 as he's speaking to the cut-to-the-heart Jews who are now responding to the gospel call, and they say to him, what must we do? And Peter says, you must be baptized, for the promise is to you and to your children. The starting point of the catechism system is the parent that is a believer by God's grace. And what God says is, I'm doing this marvelous and wonderful thing for you. When you come to Christ, your family comes with you. But there's a duty that's involved. Look at verse 19. Because now we move from the covenant standing to the catechetical instruction. The second part of the catechism system by way of method is here. I've chosen him. And I want you to notice those powerful and marvelous words. So that. See that? So that. The administration of grace is unto an end. It's for a purpose. Duty. That he may command his children and his household. You see, the covenant standing is by grace. And now, standing in grace and standing in Christ, there is an obligation which is to command his children, which is a word about teaching. It's to give direction and instruction with authority. I remember doing vacation Bible school programs for years and years in another pastorate. And I was always struck by uh, how often people from the community brought their children out. They loved it. They loved to bring their children out for babysitting, for Bible stories, for being with other kids on a warm summer afternoon. But uh, invariably, in discussing matters with uh, parents who didn't have an active church life, I generally heard this. It's understandable, but this is what they would say. Well, I figured a little religion couldn't hurt them, so they'd be exposed to a lot of things, and they get older, and they'll figure out what they want to believe in. <laughs> That's not what God said to Abraham. He didn't say, hey, Abraham, train up your children a little bit, and make sure they have a variety of tools in their hands so they can select for themselves what they want to believe in. No, he said, train them, command them, teach them, instruct them. And you see here, it's to be to his children and his house. 
and in the person of Abraham, Calvin well perceives under the person of one man a rule common to all the pious is delivered. In other words, this is the binding obligation of the church throughout the ages, the catechism system. Abraham, because of grace, has a duty, and that duty is to focus on him and his children and his wife and his house. And guess who else? I love it. His household after him. It means Abraham is to give solemn thought to not just his children, his grandchildren, but that whole host of generations that will succeed him that will be raised up by the power of God. And he is have a concern for the religious life of his family after his death. Unto generation after generation. Matthew Henry says it like this. Abraham was to have an eye to his posterity. That religion might flourish in his family when he was in the grave. Lots of things have changed in my mind, having become a grandfather recently. But something that was impressed on my mind more clearly than ever is we're not just training up our children. We're seeking to train up our children's children. And then I got the thinking, not just their children, but their children's children's children, their children's 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 children. Keep saying that after a while, you realize your life is going to change. And so I stopped praying just for my children and their grandchildren. But I started praying for the third and fourth generation that the fifth, sixth, and seventh would know a great reward. Because their parents have been training them up. God is confirming the grace. That's exactly what he says to Abraham. That is the catechism system. Abraham so loved and so trained and so catechized and so prayed for and so modeled a faith that you're looking to the unfolding of the horizon for your family. Duty. Kelsey, and Kelsey, I'm going to speak to you very directly here for a moment because this applies so much to you. And I know this morning you're looking down at your beautiful new baby, Rin, and you're thinking about her in this day and presenting her for baptism. And it's so right that you think about this great calling that you have now to add to what you already had, which was to train up all of your children. You're going to take a vows in this morning that reflect this catechism system. Do you promise to teach her about her sinful nature and the plan of salvation, which is in Jesus Christ, and of her need with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you promise that in order that she may grow in the Christian life, to pray for her, to train her, to read the Bible, and to pray, and to keep the Lord's day, and to understand the nature of the church, and the value of its membership, and to seek communicant membership in the church? Just one phrase of richness piled on top of the other, but it gives you the vastness of the calling this morning. Lead her into a full relationship with Christ in the context of the church. That is the catechism system. We don't do it ourselves. We do it in the context of the whole people of God. That's what's so beautiful about it. We do it in the context of the whole people of God. As part of the form of baptism, we ask the congregation, do you promise to pray? to be a part of this great covenantal reinforcement.
The answer for all of God's people is unashamedly, yes! Because we understand that they're born into the church. And it's all of God's people worshiping together and praying together and loving Christ together and His church together and confessing truth together that the Lord works all of that for His glory and for the confirmation in faith. It's a method. The training up of the children in the midst of the covenant, in the middle of the church with the prayers and instruction and confessing the truth. But what is it that you're to teach? What is it that's at the heart of the catechism system? And I'm going to offer just a few things here which are a part of that message which we teach. And the very first one, and I place it here emphatically and significantly at the start, at the start teaching about God's grace. Teaching about God's grace. It seems to me that the entire Abrahamic narrative is about grace. He plucked up a guy who was living in Haran and called him to a new land and gave him an inheritance and a great family and a promise of a great seed and a great sign and seal of the faith. And he gave him great promises and he spoke about all kinds of things. But in the midst of it all, that really seems to reinforce Abraham as a recipient of grace as Abraham constantly fouled it up. And so he had to learn over and over and over and over again that God was a gracious God. Every time we read about this section here in Abraham, the one thing that we can't help but just lay hold of and rejoice in and give thanks for is even the heroes of the faith are flawed and fallen people, and yet God is merciful. And he upheld Abraham in grace. So what do we teach our children? We teach them about Jesus Christ constantly. And the joy and forgiveness and the unconditional love of God and the overflow of his mercy. The worst, almost, I say it's probably not the worst, but it's one of the worst things a parent can ever do to their child. A poison pill, if you will, is to train them in the school of legalism and Phariseeism. Because it will sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. Parents constantly reinforce your children in the knowledge of the love of God and gospel grace that Jesus Christ saves freely with his precious blood. The other thing that he is supposed to teach his children is about God's power. He is to teach about God's power, and that's something that is amplified in this narrative in a very powerful way here. And I'm thinking about Genesis 18 because it contrasts so sharply with Abraham's responses prior to that. I told you about Genesis 12 and the promise of a great nation and a great family. I told you about Genesis 13 and God reinforcing it with the metaphor of the sands of the sea. And then I told you about the stars of the great, beautiful midnight sky in Palestine, where God said to Abraham, all of your seed will be like that. You know what Abraham said? Just take my servant Eleazar and get it over with. That's what he said. Just take, just take Eliezer, my servant, and get it over with. Because we all know 86-year-old men don't have children. In Genesis 17, when God came back to him and made the same promises and sealed it with the sign and seal of the Old Covenant, which is circumcision, he promised that kings would come from Sarah. She would be the mother of nations. And do you know what our great 
forefather in the faith said, just take Ishmael, let him live before you, O Lord. Remember that child that he had outside of wedlock? Because he figured God couldn't make him the promises that were too stupendous and wonderful. And he fell on his face and he laughed. Do you know what Abraham did in Genesis 18? Paul reflects back on it in Romans 4. And he says of Abraham, in hope, against hope, he believed. In hope, against hope, he believed. And then we're told he didn't waver in unbelief, and, it, and Paul didn't sugarcoat the problem to Abram's faith because he said Abraham regarded himself as good as dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So why did Abraham finally accept that God could accomplish what he promised? The answer is Genesis 18, 14. And the words of the Lord. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Do you know what the word difficult there means in Hebrew? Wonder. The wonder is what God performed by his power. It speaks of the extraordinary and the miraculous. And what Abraham finally got through his thick skull is that the God whom he served, was the God of wonders who had great power to accomplish whatever he promised. What do we teach our children? We teach that God is a God of grace. We teach unfailingly he is a God of power. And by his power, he accomplishes marvelous and wonderful things. If you want to train your children up in worshiping the Lord, Concentrate on him being a God of grace and of power. He performs wonders. People of God, we don't have to train up strong children. We just have to train children who are strong in the Lord and the power of his might. The God of wonders. The God who is able to accomplish all that he promises. Just a couple more quickly. We're going to teach about God's unfailing word of truth. And we're in a great position to see that here. Abraham had been listening as he was kicking rocks through the Palestinian sands for 25 years. And God had said again and again and again, Abraham, you're going to have the most magnificent and wonderful family. And here's Abraham with him and Sarah and a bunch of goats. And then came Isaac. When Sarah was as good as dead for having children. And at a hundred years old, Abraham had the wonderful and life-changing experience of cradling in his arms the fulfillment of God's word. It's unfailing. What do you need to train your children up in? You need to train your children up in the fact that when God says something, he means it. When God promises something, he will perform it. And the performance rests upon him. As the Virgin Mary said, as she contemplated the reality of the extraordinary thing that had happened to her, 
this conception, miraculous conception in the person that she now bore. She said, God has remembered his mercy to his people, the very thing that he spoke to Abraham and his descendants. 2,000 years later, God's promises didn't have an expiration date. They just had his own time period. And we always have to remember that, people of God. God's promises do not have an expiration date. They just have to happen on his timetable. Hit your children. Think about it for yourselves, moms and dads. It's enough for us to contemplate the rest of our life. God's word never fails. That makes faith strong. Finally, what was he to teach them? He was to teach them about the ethical call of God. Look at verse 19. What was he to do? He was to command his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. What do we teach our children? The way of the Lord, and the way of the Lord is to keep something, which is a moral calling, biblically speaking. And what is it that they're to keep? They're told here very plainly, justice and righteousness. Justice is about the commandments of God, the table of the law. And righteousness is about, remember I told you Ezekiel said? What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? She didn't help the poor and the needy. Instead, she spent time on abundance and excess and careless pleasure. What are you to teach your children? You're to teach them that God has placed a moral calling upon their life to walk within the commandments of God, to not take their rules from the world. We are to teach our children that God's moral law has this great and glorious binding authority upon their life. They don't get to, de to decide and to choose what they think is ethical and right God does. And in the midst of that great law, God said, make sure you train up children who are merciful to the weak, kind to those who are oppressed, neighborly to those who need your help. Everybody thinks the bully is one of the most repugnant images that they encounter. God says, don't train up bullies. Train up children who love justice, who love to do what is right and helpful to those who are in need and who are weak. That's the catechism way. It starts with covenant standing. It proceeds to catechetical instruction to train children up in the way of the Lord. Why? Because finally the outcome, just bear with me a moment more, the outcome. And I, and I hope uh, you see that great uh, set of words again. So that. We saw the first so that. I've chosen him so that. He'll command his children. I want you to see the second so that. If your Bible's open, please just look at it for yourself here in verse 19. I've chosen him so that he may command his children his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and judgment. So that, what? That the Lord may bring upon him what he has spoken. What has he spoken? He's spoken about covenant and promises. And all of those covenantal promises are about who? 
They're about Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says when you look back at it in Galatians 3.7. He says, God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. He goes on to say that when God was making all these promises about a great seed, that it was about Jesus Christ. The Lord himself, when he was arguing with the Pharisees, said, Abraham, your father, look forward to my day. And he rejoiced in it. The promises of the covenant are about Christ. And all spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All of that is what was promised to Abraham and to his children. The Heidelberg Catechism in question 74 beautifully summarizes this as it speaks about the obligation of infant baptism. It says this about our children. Redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised. Why? Because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Christ is what's promised. But I want you to look at the so that, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham he has spoken. You see, we have the means, we have the duty here, he is to command, he is to teach. And we have the consequence or the outcome, the Lord will bring. These are inseparably connected. We are not free to, to separate them. God has joined them together. The catechism way is we are obligated to instruct and to teach. But the other part of the catechism system is that it's all ultimately in the sovereign and gracious hands of a loving God. And here's what he says. Ah, we'll bring it. To pass. God himself has forged the link. And when you think about that, you ask yourself, what parent would ever fail if they know this? What parent would ever fail to take that little baby on their knee and sing glorious songs of Christ in their ear? What parent would fail to take those precious gospel memory verses and speak them into their hearing? What parent would refuse to take that little child and teach them the most basic doctrinal truths, to constantly point them to Christ and to his love and to his mercy, knowing that when they do that, God gives a great promise. He will bring. He will bring. He will bring. I know somebody's going to say, well, haven't there been people who were brought up in the church who heard all of this and were trained the right way and left? And I'd say, yes, I was one of them. And the Lord brought to me. And I've watched it happen again and again over the course of years. Sometimes people stray. But God is sovereign. He executes the fulfillment of his promises, not on our timetable, but according to his will. And so what do we do when we apply ourselves to the catechism system as parents and as a congregation, knowing that it didn't come from us. It came from the Lord. It's humble. It's simple. It's covenantal. It's divinely appointed. 
comes with a great promise. The Lord says it himself. He will breathe upon Abraham what he spoke. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your appointments. They're marvelous in our eyes, even though they're humble. We thank you, Father, that you are teaching us to look to you and to your word or instruction about how we live out this faith before you. And what a precious time to think about those things as we prepare for baptism of one of your covenant children. Would you remind us all that we are your children and all of us are begotten by grace. This whole narrative shows us there's no way into a relationship with you apart from Jesus Christ and apart from your wondrous love and apart from your working it in us. So all of us, as we hear about the wonder of your appointments, I'll marvel this morning at what's so precious to us is what you've done in us by grace. You've brought us to your son, Jesus, and you've washed us from our sins. And you've engrafted us into his glorious person. And we now are seated with him in the heavenlies and we enjoy everything that we need because of your mercy. So lead all of us right now in our hearts to give up our praise and adoration to you. Knowing that you indeed are the God of grace and of wonders. Cause us to have worshipful hearts. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.